The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Xylem, Let's Solve Water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, Building a World of Difference. By CanDo, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. By 374 Water, pioneering a new era in sustainability. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. And by Intera, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. This is Session 215. Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. I hope everyone's doing well out there and getting a good start to their summers. Uh, what a terrific show we have for you today. We have Emily Simonson, the Director of Strategic Initiatives for the U.S. Water Alliance, and she is here to share some findings and strategies that they have identified in their recent report on community-based consolidations. So for those of you who know Emily, you are well aware what a terrific person she is and what a great asset to the water sector she is. And for those who don't know Emily, here's your shot to hear her and get to know her a little bit. So Emily, as always, gives a terrific interview, and she is an absolutely outstanding guest. So get ready for this one. Well, we always begin with a hearty thank you to our sponsors. Uh, again, the sponsors for 2022 of the Water Values Podcast include Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, 374 Water, Woodard & Curran, and Intera. And that is one terrific collection of impactful companies and organizations that have come together and decided to support water industry thought leadership and education. So thank you all. Your support is greatly appreciated. And I'd like for you, the listener, if you could, to do me a favor, please. If you work for or with any of the sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at that sponsor firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know that you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It'd be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. And while you're at it, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast as well. Before we head on to the interview with Emily, Let's get to our Bluefield on Tap segment with Bluefield Research's Reese Tisdale. So take it away, guys. Well, Reese, welcome to another Bluefield on Tap. How are you doing this week? Good, Dave. I think, uh, you know, family's just coming out of the COVID storm. I made it, <laughs> I made it uh, clean as a whistle. Didn't even get it. Everybody else did. The uh, Boston Celtics are in the NBA championship. And uh, as you know, the Red Sox stink. Yeah. So. Two well, out of three ain't bad. Well, Boston Red Sox, uh, they they took uh, three or three out of four or four out of four against the Mariners. So, uh, if you think they stink, you should be a Seattle fan. And uh, <laughs> I, I would, I do note, however, that uh, the Boston Celtics front office is led by a Hoosier. So, 
at least we have that going for us. So in getting back to the world of water, what is on Bluefield's mind this month? Well, I can tell you, as we talked a little bit about, and that is over the past, I'd say two years, we've been working on a global digital water forecast. We've looked at, we've done forecasts from different angles, asset management, we've done the US and Canada, but this is the first time we've looked at 45 countries around the world and figured out what the forecasts are across 34, 35 uh, segments specifically. So we're really excited about that at Bluefield Research. So it hits the streets next week. All right. So tell me a little more about this um, this report that's coming out that you guys have done. Uh, uh, you know, let's dig into it a little more. What? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think, it, you know, the, the news is if it's not already hitting the street, it will soon. And that is the digital sector. You've had a number of guests, you know, that talk a lot about it, all these different areas of, you know, these technology solutions to support both municipalities, but also industrials. But it's a 300, according to our models and an analysis of over 400,000 systems around the world, municipal systems, it's about a $387 billion market over 10 years combined. So it's going to grow from about 25 billion to 50 billion over that time annually. So it's a uh, which is about an 8% growth rate, which I think, and we may have even talked about this, digital seems to be growing within the water, municipal water segment as a whole. It's growing at a faster clip than the market as, as a whole, right? If the market as a whole spending grows at about, you know, two to 3%, digital solutions are growing at about eight, eight plus. Uh, yeah. So what, what do you think is driving that? Because um, uh, at least my impression is that utilities are really straining under inflation. And so they're tightening their belts and that would tell me that they're not going to be investing in this stuff. So what's, what's uh, driving it? Well, that you actually raise a really good point. And that is, and we're already starting to see that in our analysis of top companies in water when we go through the financials. And that is their definite, I'd say, headwinds, uh, if you want to call it that. And there's still even workforce headwinds where a number of companies, the digital ones, like metering companies, they're not able, if they're having supply chain, if they're having workforce disruption because of COVID, that's slowing down their own production capabilities to getting the meters out on the street or in the households or at the, the interface to the to the properties the other part of that is you know the material prices are through the roof i mean i think even looking just yesterday at a conversation about the pipe market specifically in materials and they're up 25 to 30 percent uh in some cases higher than that if you're looking at steel but that seems to be flattening um and that may be because it's work it's already worked its way through the system. Uh, the housing market has begun to slow or soften is another way to put it. So definite headwinds, but uh, look, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we're looking at 45 countries, which represents, you know, of that it's like 90% of the global digital water market. Um, so we're really talking about North America. We're talking about Europe was a bit, which is a big chunk. We're looking at South Africa, Australia, Vietnam, China. Um, so we're talking about, I'd say more developed countries, uh, where that's happening. So in some cases they've withstood, um, you know, at least the pandemic maybe better than others in some respects. Yeah. So, uh, is North America the largest uh, growth sector? Uh, you know, is that is that a fair assessment? 
Yeah, I mean, not not just that. The U.S. itself is about twenty five percent of the market as a whole, and in a big chunk of that is going to be SCADA systems and meters, right? So that's a big, which is a little bit different. You know, when you start looking at the markets themselves, if you start looking towards Europe, there's less metering spend. The U.S. is really strong or heavy uh, in in the dollars when it comes to meters, and whereas in Europe they're more focused on things like operations and operational performance. So the markets do vary, um, generally speaking. I mean, another sort of, I'd say, big takeaway or something that we're really keen to see happening over the period is, I think my colleague Eric Bindler says that the democratization of digital technology. Well, I would, you know, buzzword perhaps, but it's really getting beyond the 100,000 and larger, you know, population serve systems right now it's it's about 63% of the total spend is going to go towards these large systems they have more dollars they have larger networks they have more needs the key is the real challenge i'd say performance wise operationally uh, it's the smaller systems if anybody's struggling and are, and are in dire need of efficiency gains it, it would be the smaller ones yeah. Is there an opportunity for, for folks to come in and roll up small utilities and uh, deploy a uniform uh, digital solution across those to, to gain some efficiencies there? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, whether it be just acquisition, um, you sort of rolling up systems, so they sort of the IOU model, or even just the uh, contract operations. You know, if you're uh, Inframark or Veolia, you can come in and provide solutions across a number of systems, gain economies of scale. I mean, the first step would be billing. You know, everybody has to deal with billing. So that's a maybe a first step. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Reese, as always, thank you so much for your time and sharing your insights with us. I look forward to reading this report when it comes out. So uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, man. All right, Dave. It's good to catch up. Good to see you. And uh, we'll talk soon. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. As always, great information from Bluefield Research and Reese Tisdale on their forecast for the digital uh, water sector. Uh, now it's on to our featured guest, Emily Simonson. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Emily, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So great to have you on. How are you today? I'm doing good, and thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to, to talk with you today uh, because you were talking about one of my favorite uh uh, things about the water industry, and that's our, our the fragmentation. But before we before we get into that, uh, for those who don't know who you are, can you please provide a little thumbnail on your background and how you got interested in water? I'm happy to. So I am currently the director of strategic initiatives at a national nonprofit called the U.S. Water Alliance. But um, my first job after college was actually working on water access issues in Ghana in West Africa. So um, I thought at the time that I was going to be a public health professional, but I fell in love with what I was doing in Ghana, which is building rainwater harvesters um, in places that weren't being connected to main systems. And it, it just showed me that, you know, water is just so fundamental for thriving. It connects to your health, your economy. And uh, so... While I explored a few other career paths after graduate school, I always found myself gravitating towards water. And I eventually ended up as a research fellow at EPA's Urban Waters Program. Uh, and that's that's where I learned about the U.S. Water Alliance and made my way over here. Yeah, that's awesome. We're so lucky to have you in uh, in the industry. So we appreciate everything you've done. Uh, 
what caught my eye and the reason I wanted to have you on was the uh, recently released uh, study by the U.S. Water Alliance called Catalyzing Community-Driven Utility Consolidations and Partnerships. And fragmentation is so great in the water. I mean, we've all seen the stats, right? 50,000 plus community Mm -hmm. water systems, things like that. And so I'm a big believer in creating a more efficient framework for our utilities. And so can you just kind of provide a background on why this is so important or why the study was so important that that the U.S. Water Alliance did on fostering these types of community-driven consolidations and partnerships? Yeah. Thanks for asking that question because I feel like, you know, you're right. And a lot of folks talk about the fragmentation in the industry from a place of like, ah, if we could just sort this out, solving our challenges would be so much easier. And I think for us at the U.S. Water Alliance, one of the challenges that really keeps us up at night and, and causes us to gravitate towards utility partnership models is the fact that over 2 million people in this country lack access to running water and sanitation in their homes. And that's, you know, a, a problem we don't traditionally associate uh, with a developed nation. Um, and not only that, but, you know, so many more people are served by water systems that are in violation of federal safety standards. So with that and with our climate future on our mind, um, that really leads us to think about like, okay, what do we really need so that our water systems can continue delivering the public value that they do to individuals, to communities? And, you know, what are, what are we up against? And I think one of the things we're up against as well that is important to talk about in this context is just the scale of our infrastructure investment needs. So, you know, it, you mentioned things we talk about in the industry all the time. This is one of them. And we know that despite the new funding through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act last summer, there's still going to be an incredible gap in spending on water infrastructure over the coming years. It's a great start. That policy is a great start, um, but so much more is needed. And so if we really want to make the most of the dollars available, talking about how we can get to utility partnerships and consolidation is important. And because it's such a contentious issue, we need to talk about it from a community-driven standpoint. And we can talk more about what that might mean yeah. in a bit, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'd, l- I'd love to get your perspective on uh, how to foster these uh, community partnerships and uh, consolidation, right? Because no one, I, I, I guess, from my perspective, the knee-jerk reaction when someone says consolidation means, oh, you know, big brother's coming in and I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. going to have a say anymore. And that's not really, so that's the connotation, but it's not really how it, how it ought to happen in practice and how it doesn't and often, oftentimes happens in practice. So can you provide a little more background on, on that aspect of, of the U S water alliances work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's important to start off with the fact that, you know, utility cooperation models, whether it's partnerships, regionalization, consolidation, those are tools and they can be used for for good and they can, you know, be used in cases where they have a lot of negative consequences. And so um, we hear residents when we when we hear residents, but we still want to make progress, we kind of have to take a step back and just acknowledge that um, while consolidation is really directly help advance 
environmental justice, water access, water safety in a lot of places. Um, it's also, you know, served to to weaken representative water management in other places to really detrimental effect. So um, talking about, you know, these agreements and what's really important to hold true is local voice. And um, I think what I would reiterate to people who are talking about local control uh, and Big Brother coming in, as you put it, is just to remember that these are agreements that are incredibly customizable. And if we can design, you know, really considerate, engaged processes, we can come up with agreements that meet community needs and expectations, not just for their water challenges, but for their governance and representation uh, concerns as well. Yeah. So I think you've, you've really done a great job identifying all these issues and things like that. So can you, how did the U S water Alliance, can you talk a little about the background of, of what brought us to the point of, of publishing this, this study undertaking Mm -hmm. and, and then releasing the study? I mean, can you, can you set that up a little, please? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, the Alliance has, has always gravitated towards tricky issues in the sector, ones that no one part of the industry can solve alone. And I think we do that because we bring together a big tent. You know, it's not just water systems and wastewater systems. It's nonprofits, it's academia, it's labor, it's uh, advocates, right? And um, so we lean into those tough issues. And this project really kind of took off for us when we were sitting there in, you know, March, 2020, when the pandemic was really kind of shaking the fundamental ways we go about our lives in this country. And, and, you know, the water sector was not immune from that. We took a step back and we designed a program where we said, you know, this is a moment of huge disruption. What are the things that we really need to focus on if we want to come out of this um, and try to use that moment of disruption for, for transformation. And we chose a set of issues that we thought were, fundamental to putting us on a better path for our water future. And this was one of them. And we chose to work with California because, you know, California has so much going on just in terms of their vision for using utility cooperation models, um, their enabling policy environment, their funding. Um, but despite everything they have going for them, it's it's been slow work to achieve their consolidation and regionalization goals which to them are all about their, you know, realizing their human right to water legislation. So we were like, okay, if we can unlock what's getting us stuck in California, that could not only help California, but other states who are uh, hoping to make progress. Um, So from there, you know, we did what we do best, which is where we convene people who we need to solve the problem in a cross-sector way. So not just the California State Water Board, but community-based organizations, consultants, TA providers, um, and others to help us think about the places where we were getting stuck in the process uh, and try to figure out interventions in those stuck places to help us accelerate, um, keeping in mind that what we did, you know, couldn't be so smooth that it would totally wipe out the procedural safeguards we need in place to ensure participation, public engagement, um, and, uh, and the principles of environmental justice that we care about. Yeah. And one of the things I, I think it's important to, to bring up is when I read through the report, California's goal is actually pretty modest. They, they're, they're trying mm-hmm. to get 200 consolidations by 2025 yeah. when there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 7,400 water systems. Um, mm-hmm. 
And so it's, it's really a pretty modest goal is what they're, what they're aiming at. And, uh, I just bring that up because it, it, I think it just shows how thorny this issue is. If the, they're they're running into roadblocks with such a modest goal. No, you know it's interesting. One of the things we talked about as a group was, you know, okay, how do how long soup to nuts does going through this process take on average? And you know, it's it's up to fifteen years, right? Yeah. And so to think about doing two hundred of them by. 2025 when <laughs> you know the the average time frame it's it's not i don't believe the average is quite 15 years but it, like it's pretty staggering so um you know i mentioned those stuck places one of the ones that we focused on was as a group was let's map out that timeline and figure out where the biggest pain points are because ideally what we would love to do is to reduce that time frame you know, something more manageable, two, three, even five years would be a great advantage over what we have now. And uh, frankly, I would like to see that come down even further, just considering that I view um, this issue as as an urgent one when there are people living today without access to safe water. Right. And so what what are some of the strategies that are set forth in this uh, report or the study that that mm-hmm. help help us down the road to overcome some of those roadblocks. Totally. Yeah. So just to pick up on on the issue that I just named. So when we were looking at that time frame, one of the things that we devised as a group were, okay, these are the milestones in this process. What can be done? You know, what is the ideal for each phase in terms of time frame? And if those milestones aren't met, what action might that trigger? which could reinvigorate the process and get it unstuck, right? And so we went through (laughs) phase by phase, said, okay, if you get stuck at this phase, what can be done? And a lot of the times, the what can be done um, actually lands back on the state's shoulders, right? So even if the state were to send a letter asking for the engineering firm or the municipalities involved to keep going and that they'd missed a milestone, that would actually be a lot. And, you know, Towards the, towards the more hammer end of the carrots and sticks conversation, California has the ability to mandate consolidation in certain instances. And so all the way from like sending a letter to sending a person to get it unstuck, depending on where in the process you're at, to really putting a, a system on the list for potential mandatory consolidation are all things that can be done if those points in the milestones aren't being met. And we know that the proposals that we came up with as a group are now being used to seed ongoing internal conversations at the State Water Resources Control Board um, and our contribution to their internal policy decisions. So that's one cool thing. Um, But we chose to focus on a few other stuck places where we wanted to really think about what proposals might work um, to overcome the stuckness. And, you know, one (laughs) of them that was really kind of big is uh, just the amount of political will building and readiness that you have to do in order to, to queue up these agreements, you know, and, and we talked a lot about like, what is that phase called? And we're like, it's step zero. It's not even step one. And it's the process of going into a community, talking to various stakeholders listening, finding out about different needs, perceptions, 
um, possibilities, right? And creating shared expectations. And because of the group that we were able to pull together, which included not just, you know, state bureaucrats and academics, but water systems and community advocates and TA providers as well, we actually charged the community organizations and were like, hey, come up with what you think the ideal step zero, the ideal engagement process should look like, right? Um, yeah. and, and that's a proposal that I think is um, not just helpful to consolidation projects, but a ton of other projects that you might consider in the water sector as well. So yeah. I'm proud of that one. Yeah, well, as well, you should be. I love the concept of step zero. And I, I think you're absolutely right in that, you know, one of, one of my good friends uh, in the water sector, a guy named Jack Whitman at Interra, he, uh, mm-hmm. he has said that one of the biggest problems that he sees is with you know, these utilities that are neighboring, but they have no idea. They don't talk to one another. Uh, and if people just talk to one another, much more of this, you know, there'd be, there'd be more opportunities for partnering and consolidating if, if that were the case. And so getting that public mm-hmm. engagement out there is so important. Totally. And it's a skill set and it's a skill set that you have to compensate for too. You have to pay people <laughs> for their expertise. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's the, what's the, uh, another strategy you, and uh, let, let me also say one other thing, uh, um, because I think it's important that, that you mentioned California has the, uh, ability to force consolidation in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot, there's a lot of folks out there that will say, Oh, that's a, that's, you know, a blue state mentality or what have you. It might be, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm, I'm based in Indiana and Indiana is a red state and there have been instances where, uh, as a for example, as a condition of um, getting a state revolving fund loan, that the entity getting that loan had to take in a failing system. The only reason I say that is because this is not a red or blue issue. This is an instance where you know public health is so important that that it just needs to happen, and so it doesn't matter if you're red or blue, the force consolidation can, can occur. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, so, okay. So sorry for that little diatribe. Uh, <laughs> I will, I will now ask you, Emily, uh, what, what are some of the other strategies that you've kind of identified in this, in this study? Yeah. So one of the things that can often hold these conversations back before they even really get off the ground is the discussion of, you know, what could these agreements between these systems do for our pocketbooks, for our finances, for our rates? Um, You know, what are the costs associated and, and is the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak? And even to find out some preliminary you know, economic indicators and financial indicators on that cost something. And so you have communities wondering, like, should we do the feasibility assessment on what it's going to cost, the impact it's going to have on rates and what we pay? Um, Or do we think that, you know, if we do that and we don't proceed with any sort of agreement, that'll be sunk cost and we'll have wished we would have spent that on something else, right? And so one of the things that the group considered, you know, given this particular pain point was, you know, wouldn't it be great if there was just a a publicly available, simple to use rate analysis calculator, right? Where you could 
put in a few parameters about your system, what you're paying now, what the main issues are, and get at least a back of the napkin sense of what different um, utility cooperation options might do to impact those rates, right? And having that information without having to go and pay 50,000 bucks more or less, you know, for these feasibility analyses could really get the ball rolling on a central question that is kind of on the, the hearts and minds of a lot of the political um, decision makers involved in the agreements. So that's kind of one cool thing. And, you know, so that idea was birthed at, at this, you know, these convenings that we did. And now the Water Foundation and the California State Water Board are working to try to fund and see if there's a group out there that could create a calculator like that and make it available. Yeah. And the, the report talks about that. You know, I, th I think kind of what you're getting at is the, uh, mm -hmm. the open source kind of feasibility study so that you can essentially, yeah. essentially get, get over some of these roadblocks, some of these transaction costs that people have a, a the, the, in their mind that the transaction cost is so high because it's unknown. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. So what, um, what are some of the other strategies that you've identified? Yeah, one one more that might be worth calling out, you know, doing a soup to nuts regionalization or consolidation agreement, um, it takes a lot of people and a lot of people with a particular set of skills, right? And if we want them done in a way that really values public engagement and community participation, one of the big things that we had to grapple with was, you know, how do we just get more capacity not just from an engineering standpoint into this space, but also public engagement capacity and community organizing capacity into this space. Because with the current landscape of, you know, who the engineers are and who the technical assistance providers are, we don't necessarily have enough <laughs> to take on all these different agreements and do them in a, in a timeframe that, that feels acceptable, right? So um, the group charged with, you know, that question in mind about how do we bring in that community and technical capacity, they came up with a proposal for a regional structure. So instead of doing, you know, one contractor per one agreement, um, paying one, you know, engagement advisor at a community level, what would it look like to have, uh, you know, those contractors, both technical and community, take on a number of projects throughout a region, right? And be contracted to do all of them. Um, and be advisors and peers and equal strategists to one another on a larger scale instead of project by project. So um, that is a proposal that we have heard. You know, we built it out and we've passed it to the state water board. And we also heard that that is a proposal that's seeding their internal um, policy and, and um, you know, planning and strategy conversations. So I think that one's interesting. And again, that's one that might not only be applicable to, you know, utility cooperation, you know, agreements and proposals, but all sorts of different types of water projects that we rely on uh, our engineering and technical assistance community for. Yeah. The, great, great thoughts there. Uh, how uh, you, you mentioned that the California... Um, uh, State Water Resources Board is take is you know in, incorporating that. Have you? What has been the impact of the report so far? I mean, it's, it hasn't been out that <laughs> long, but have have you gotten any any you know feedback on it that people say you know I really like this aspect of it or uh, anything like that? Yeah, you know, to me, I think um, 
So here are a few cool things about the, the report and the ideas. First, the ideas we proposed are seeding real policy change discussions, real new project offshoots. But one of the things that makes me feel so good, just as one of the organizers of the project, is that the group is continuing to meet because they know that there are more things, just given what we've already done, that they can continue to make progress on together if we keep talking, right? Yeah. And so that yeah. feels amazing, right? Right. Another. I'm sorry. Oh, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just agreeing with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that feels really good. Another thing that I think is is interesting and is kind of an insight is we, you know, as a part of another project, we brought together a lot of uh, state policymakers for kind of a closed door session where they were, you know, sharing what had been working for them in order to, you know, help the water sector recover from the shocks of, of the pandemic. And, you know, this was before the infrastructure bill passed and what the future might hold if that passed, if Build Back Better passed, what was keeping them up at night, what did they think was working just amongst themselves. And, you know, what was interesting to me, and we were there as the Alliance sharing with them some insights we heard from some national uh, listening sessions with folks across the country, you know, they actually picked out, you know, one of the things that was keeping them up at night was how do we make sure the investments that we make, no matter the funding that's coming down the pike, uh, how do we make sure that those investments are smart ones, that they're, you know, invested in solutions that are going to be sustainable over the long term and not just building new infrastructure to build new infrastructure without a thought for how it's managed, maintained over time. And so they were actually raising you know, regionalization consolidation is something that they wanted to advance, but they just, you know, were concerned with the right ways of, of how, just given a lot of the political dynamics that can come when you raise this issue. And I actually am excited to bring this work back to that forum as, a, as an offering for how you can at least start some productive dialogue with folks in, in states and regions beyond California for how you can move the needle on that, because I think they were asking a really important question. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think you're, this, this report is going to do a lot of good out there, and uh, especially the follow-up work that you're, you're doing as well. Well, Emily, you've been uh, absolutely terrific. I have the report is awesome. I've, I really enjoyed, uh, uh, reading through it. Um, but what is your leave behind message, uh, that you want to, if, if someone's kind of listening to this podcast, what, what do you want them to take away from it? My leave behind message is that we are up against a lot concerning water. You know, water is the medium through which we're going to experience climate impacts. So many people in this country already don't have the water security that so many of us take for, for granted. And, you know, this is a topic that it's, it's really hard, but it's worth doing. Um, and if we can do it in a principled, community-driven manner, uh, we're going to be set up not just for, for our generation, but generations to come, which I think is our obligation. So thanks yeah. for letting me talk about it, David. <laughs> and I'm glad you like the report. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree. I love your leave behind message, by the way, Emily. At, uh, Thank you. It's very poignant. Um, well, Emily, for those who want to find out more about you and the, the work you've done, as well as the report, where can they go to get that information? Yeah, our work is widely available for free, no firewall or anything, at uswateralliance.org. Or you can find me on Twitter at, at Emily Simo. Awesome. 
Well, Emily, thank you so much. You've been, as I say, you've been awesome. I really appreciate all your work and especially the work you're doing in the water industry. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for having me on again, David. This has been great. You're very welcome. All right. We'll talk to you soon, Emily. Bye. Bye. What a terrific interview by Emily. She was incredibly authentic and articulate, and I can't thank her enough for coming on and doing such a phenomenal job, especially in this important area of consolidation of water utilities, because we all know in this fragmented sector that it's really hard to gain efficiencies, and one of the easiest ways we can do it is to consolidate the number of systems. I know that word is not favored, but I think they just they just called it what it is. It needs to happen. Uh, so I would love to know what you thought about that interview. Please check out the show notes for this info and links on this page. You can just Google the water values podcast and click the first link that comes up again. That takes you to the landing page on the Bluefield research website. Uh, again, Bluefield research and the water values are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing agreement. And as part of that, the water values has a home on the web through Bluefield research's website. You can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com and you can sign up for the newsletter at that aforementioned landing page as well. Well, thank you for tuning in and I hope you make it a great day. I want to give another huge shout out and thank you to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the podcast include Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, 374 Water, Woodard and & Curran, and Intera. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thank you for your support and for listening. I can't tell you how great it is to be a part of this industry where I get to work with dedicated and caring participants and individuals, and I get to work with them and interact with them on a daily basis. So thank you. And in closing... Please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.